You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. The director, David Fincher, probably needs no introduction. But just in case, his extraordinary movies include Fight Club, Zodiac, The Social Network, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and most recently, Mank. And if you've seen Fincher's films since Zodiac, you've also seen the beautiful work of the production designer, Donald Graham Burt who won an Academy Award for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I spoke with both Fincher and Burt about Mank, a black-and-white evocation of Hollywood through the jaded eyes of one Herman Mankiewicz, as he writes the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Our conversation explored the conception of the film's particular spaces, the techniques behind designing for a black-and-white film in a color world, the eagle-eyed capabilities of digital cameras, and whether Fincher thinks of Mank as a political film. Mank received 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Director, and Production Design, and so it was a perfect moment to speak to Fincher and Burt about the art and craft of the film. Let's go to our conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. Today we have a very special episode. We'll be talking about Mank, but it won't just be me uh, yammering away. I'm fortunate to have special guests today, and that is director David Fincher and the production designer, Don Burt. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Hey, thank you. Hey, thank you so much. So I've been watching this uh, again, and each time I watch, I feel like I see another detail uh, in the compositions and in the images and and the design. And I kind of wanted to start maybe from a a different angle. You know, I I read a lot about the historical aspect of the production design. Uh, I I wanted to see if we could talk about the rooms and the spaces, how they feel for the audience and, you know, what you wanted the audience to feel with these rooms and spaces and how the production design is a part of that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Any room specifically or any space that you're interested in? And maybe we can start with uh, Mank's writer's room in the bungalow. What did you want a writer's room to feel like for the audience to be entering that that space? The Verde Ranch? When he's bedridden, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, that, that was an actual place. And, um, and, and we went and toured it and saw where Mankwitz had actually stayed, which was kind of a, um, it, it was, a, it evolved because I believe when he first got there, he was in the body cast and then the body cast was whittled down. So it was just a leg cast and then it was a, and then he was on crutches and then he was on a cane. So, um, we, we looked at what the actual place had to offer and the people who owned it were kind of, and, and the family who, who owned it when Mankowitz was there was, um, still owns it. And they walked us through it and were kind enough to kind of share what they knew about it. And then we had to do what we always have to do, which is say, you know, we've got a six page scene where this has to happen. And so where would he be? And what kind of where, you know, it's a night scene. So is he, if he's getting a massage, is he outside? Well, he could be outside at night in the desert and perhaps they brought the uh, massage table out there. And so he would have hobbled out on crutches in a, in a body cast and he'd be, so we kind of start with, the actual place and then sort of modify, you know, or, or at least modified our thinking about it in terms of what each individual scene kind of required. Yeah. I think, I think when we went there, you know, it was, you know, David was, 
very intent on finding which door would be the door that would be the entry into where he was staying. And I think that was the important thing was to establish sort of, you know, a sense of geography, whether we cheated it in the actual filming or not. But, you know, so we sort of found this corner off the run of the, um, the bungalow rooms there that, that we established as his exterior door. And then in terms of the interior, we kind of walked through the different rooms and just took notes and took, photographs of the different architectural elements they had and there was a room area that that David responded to and that we felt could work but you know we had to rearrange some things and you know reconfigure but we used their elements so that it sort of stayed consistent with the language of the uh, the total place um, I mean they say that it's Spanish revival to me it's it always felt more like sort of a territorial revival types place it felt more something that was built almost kind of in like new mexico arizona desert or something and it, yeah you know victorville yeah. is kind of an extension of arizona coming west toward los angeles and it kind of had that feel with the adobe brick block outside and the mm. the adobe walls interior and the exposed beams even though they call it spanish revival to me it was more territorial so we kind of followed that but you know for instance the fireplace was something that we saw the brick fireplace was something that we saw within several of the other rooms and we thought well let's take this and let's reconfigure it into our room and i really like that brick and the idea of it it was so kind of unexpected to be honest with you at least for me and um, that, that was kind of how we approached it in terms of design. And then David, you know, was saying, I've got a guy in a bed for the whole, the whole sequence in here. Mm-hmm. So it was important that we discussed, you know, how we made hallways, passageways, just different veins that when we shot off of it, it provided depth. And it wasn't just a man in a bed in a room, you know. And I think sort of the seminal moment was when David said in the beginning, you know, I wanted to feel like he was brought out of a bedroom and they set him up in sort of what was a, a living room or a gathering yeah. room, and family room yeah. a family room. And that would give us more dimension and more opportunity. Yeah, it's it's such a strong contrast from the uh, group writer's room, which is a much more chaotic place. You know, you kind of have chairs everywhere and, and people are oriented in, in sort of un- unusual ways. It seems like there's a different energy there than the solitary writer holding court in his bungalow. Well, it's also it was also important that, you know, when when you talk about, you know, Paramount Pictures at that time and contrast it with MGM, you know, MGM was you know, the Rolls Royce of movie studios. And Paramount was not. <laughs> Paramount <laughs> was was a was a lot more of a it was a lot more low budget situation. And um and we wanted to evoke that. You know, we wanted we wanted the Paramount Rise Room to feel a little bit you know the fact that the steno pool is you know or the or the typing department is right outside the conference room where all of those, you know, great minds were housed at that time, which is an important thing. There's always this sort of humming, clacking noise, you know, industry happening next door. And then you go to where they're all smoking and drinking and playing cards at MGM. And it's much more Airstream and Art Deco and Burlwood and 
And there's no sense that there's this uh, machinery or industry happening through those windows. It's much more of an insulated, like, you know, the writers here are treated much better. And the other thing they, and at Paramount, they got, they had room to spread out, but then where they went, where their um, offices were off of that is unexplained. And it, and it does tend to look a little more like a sewing machine factory or something from the 1920s. <laughs> and of course, I mean, both of those spaces are such a huge contrast to the palatial San Simeon, particularly the two sequences there that jump out because they use the mansion, I guess, differently. One being when it's Louis B. Mayer's birthday. And I was fascinated by how you use that space versus how you designed uh, the space for the banquet dinner where Mank has his drunken roast. Well, the, it, uh, I'm, 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 I'm going I'm to jump in on that one for just for a sec, Tom, because it's, yeah. ironic that, it's ironic that the... Um, the space that you're talking about is literally the same set. But, yep, um, the same. But, but what was important, in, I just want to talk a little bit about the, the backstory for the for the LB Mayor birthday party, the July 4th birthday party. One of the things that Hearst was kind of infamous for is, is the sort of intellectual and or political jousting that he encouraged. You know, the, the stop on the West Coast, you know, for visiting dignitaries almost always included San Simeon because Hearst was curious about people and wanted to bring them to his castle on the hill and hear what it is that they had to say for themselves. And this was, you know, this was something that, you know, my father researched and sort of walked me through it, but it was an important part of who this guy was. You know, he had... Probably, I mean, at this time, he, he may have had as many as 20 daily newspapers, but there were six to eight of them that were really important, big city, big circulation papers that he had that he would close and decide the covers on every night. And he would do that from 8 p.m. until midnight, and then he would make a decision, and then those would go to press. And, and this was Chicago and Seattle and all of these different places. And that was all done from San Simeon. He would go there with his people. And, but before that, there was a dinner and there was very little drinking. Alcohol was not for, but forbidden, but it was frowned upon. And then once Pops left, once Pops got his fill of kind of having people um, argue in front of him and make a case for their um, having been invited um, he would then go upstairs, close out, you know, his papers, and that's when the gin would start flowing. <laughs> and, and so we, we wanted to get that feeling, a scene that had that, that sort of exposed aspect of San Simeon. And so that was, that, that was an important narrative part, which is one of the reasons why we allow that scene to be yeah. 11 pages or whatever. But over to you, Don. Well, in terms of the sets, I'm glad you called them two separate spaces because yeah. in actuality, <laughs> it was one rectilinear shell that we um, reconfigured and redressed and we amended. And for the dining hall, we added some Gothic tracery pass-throughs and we raised the wainscoting and we brought in ironwork and we brought in a different fireplace, a huge fireplace for the end end wall and we added a hallway for the 
party scene, we had columns. It was a little bit more. We brought in curtaining. We made it a little bit more of sort of like a uh, a parlor room that you would feel. We had different fireplaces. So we decided to do that in what, what was it? Douglas Fairbanks house or somebody's. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we thought, you know, with good intentions, trying to do as much as we could on location, just because of schedule and budget, we thought we could make it work. And then we realized sort of, you know, after the tech scout that this just wasn't going to work out for so many reasons. So we had already designed the dining hall and, you know, David was like, is there a way we can make this work? So, you know, Overnight, I just sort of thought about it and tried to think of ways to, you know, make it into sort of a, a little Tetris thing and do a conversion on it. So we shot the Meyer birthday party first, and then we had six weeks to turn it around and make it into the dining hall set. So we actually, because of schedule and budget and so forth, we, you know, we use good, efficient stewardship in terms of utilizing a set. Yeah. I really like the way the table you had. I mean, the long table is such an interesting element of, of that design, just the way he, uh, that Gary Oldman has to traverse that room. That was just sort of taken from, that was a piece of research that we had garnered from the real Hearst Castle and from some photographs of the day. And we we're trying to make it feel like, we knew we couldn't make it be the exact thing that San Simeon is or Hearst Castle. There's not enough money for that. <laughs> yeah, there's not, a, and there's not enough time. Yeah. So we just took certain elements and said, let's try to emulate this as best we can so that when people see it, they kind of have the sense that they're there. We we went for the limestone floors. We did the wainscoting. And although it wasn't in detail to the level of the real Hearst Castle, you know, it certainly reflected the air of that room, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to take a step back. And just ask, I guess, maybe an obvious question, but just about uh, shooting in black and white and how that affects production design, uh, not only black and white, but also having everything be very much in focus. You know, I mean, that's part of what's such a pleasure to watch yeah. the movie that I can pick out, you know, mm -hmm. silhouettes of figurines on the windowsills, that sort of thing. From my standpoint, I think that the greatest gift, the greatest advantage that we have, you know, in the 21st century is that we can monitor in black and white and monitor in the same high dynamic range that we're shooting in. So we are literally seeing what the camera sees. And, and it's interesting you point out the pitfalls of, of having very deep focus. The biggest pitfall is that, you know, for years, you know, at, I mean, as a director, I'm sure as a production designer, there there's a lot of times when you say, well, don't worry, no one's going to be watching it, so we're going to get our focus in the background. And as soon as you shoot at a T16, T11 on wide-angle lenses, you're seeing you know everything from Gary Oldman's cheekbone to the furthest, furthest reaches of an 80-foot set, you know. And I'll and I'll tell you, the production design is, is almost never. The issue in terms, the biggest issue is extras. <laughs> the biggest issue is that when you can really, truly see the face of every person in that room, um, you start to see the people who are bored by 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, the people who have, you know, who have not put their their iPhones away and are trying to check them between takes. And having that kind of deep focus 
is really a much bigger test on the AD department in terms of making sure that you're extracting the people who can't seem to <laughs> focus during the entire <laughs> scene. Um, <laughs> because you are seeing people like doze off or people get, you know, uninterested. And there were, it's interesting because we end up shooting, we shot a lot of, you know, when Gary starts his first, I called it the Indy 500, it's from 500 laps around the table. But um, when he started that, you know, the first five or six takes really were not working. And it's not that they weren't working because of how he was performing them. It's that we had to set a pace with his walking and with his pitching that that was fast enough that it felt realistic that no one would step in and intervene and save the dignity of the man of the, you know, of the manor. And so it was that thing is the timber of finding something that's moving quickly enough. Part of the reason you're going to want to stop, stop somebody like Mank who is on a tear and, and, and dressing down the host um, is because he's making everyone uncomfortable. But if what he's saying is also true and insightful and he's on enough of a slurring sort of tear with it, then there's this other thing that comes into, which is self-preservation. People are just going, you know, it's, it's seeing the crazy person on the subway, you know, don't look over him, don't look over, don't look over there. You know, <laughs> it's not just a question of performance, but it's performance and speed and how in his cups he is as he rounds the corners and how people have been sort of not shamed into silence, but frightened into silence and don't want to draw attention to themselves because, I mean, I don't think anybody knows he's going to throw up, but, but certainly people don't want, don't want him standing next to them any longer <laughs> than is absolutely uh, necessary. So there, there's all those things that you're trying to kind of juggle. But strangely enough, when it comes to detail, you know, the, the set decorators and props people and, and art department people that worked on this movie were so amazing that there was never a concern of, well, what is that doing up there? It was mostly a concern of, is that guy laughing? Or he shouldn't be laughing. You know what I mean? You would just pick up on faces. Hmm. Anyway, that was from my standpoint. Well, I mean, you know, for making the sets, you know, it's like the deep focus, you know, every inch of the set needs to be detailed correctly. You know, there's, yeah. it's, yeah. when you're in the process of making it, you don't walk, I don't walk around and say, oh, don't worry about this corner too much. They'll never really yeah. see it. It's just yeah. not true. It, yeah. You never, you always have to anticipate they'll see everything and they'll see everything close and they'll see everything from a distance and it'll all be sharp focus. And the only time I don't do that is when I hear David say, don't worry about that. I'll never see it. And yeah. I'm still hesitant. I, but <laughs> I couldn't say that on this movie. No, you never said it once on this movie. You <laughs> never said it once. In terms of the black and white, I mean, we went through the, the rigors of the testing and, you know, there were some surprises. You know, white sheets actually, believe it or not, tested yeah. to look beige. And who would have figured that? But, yeah. huh. you know, in terms of the sets themselves and the painting and the scenic work on them, you know, it's just important to find neutral values that are natural within these spaces 
that we could use so that, you know, we were finding that there were, okay, there are a lot of different greens that worked really well on black and white. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different pinks, believe it or not, that work well on black and white. But, you know, you can't paint the sets, those colors, and no. expect actors to come in and not start laughing, you know. Yeah. So, and I know on uh, uh, the set decorator I used worked on Good Night, Good Luck, and she was saying that on that show they actually did that. They they painted things and they brought in set dressing where, you know, it looked like a Haight Ashbury kind of thing from wow. the '60s, and wow. and they were shooting film and it was different, you know. But yeah. early on, David said, "Have everybody." switch their camera to the noir filter on the iPhone and take pictures of everything in that. And the standardization of that was so significant to the art department. I mean, I can't, I can't say enough how impressed I was that he came up with that idea and the fact that it helped us so much because what it did was it, it helped us all get into that mode of thinking where the black and white became instinctive and we used it so much with that filter and taking pictures of things and i just walked around my neighborhood taking pictures of different houses just to see Mm. and once it becomes natural and it becomes instinctive i think that's where you want to be creatively so that you're kind of living in that world and thinking in that world and i think that was the the most brilliant thing that that happened on the film that quietly happened to sort of mitigate any problems of the black and white. And soon I noticed my set decorator and my prop person, they would show me pictures of things and they'd say, you know, I saw this on the internet, but it's red. It's not going to work, you know? And we all knew, we all knew why, you know, because Mm -hmm. we'd become attuned to the black and white through using that noir filter. But it's also, you know, by, you know, we set up to all the monitoring was in HDR and, and um, we shot with a, monochrome sensor was not color was not even an option it's not like we shot color and then just dialed it to monochrome we shot with a sensor that literally did not record color so you know being able to monitor in that in black and white is you know truly a saving grace you know i mean it, Mm. it it takes all the guesswork out of it. you look at it and you oh we need more light there well, I mean, it's so interesting, too, because when I was thinking, David, about your past work, the last last things that leapt to mind in black and white were a lot of music videos Yeah, where you're kind of using black and white as a way to get this kind of sensuous dynamic of bodies kind of turning into images and kind of vice versa in a way. At least that's how it sort of feels in conjunction with the music. And here it's very different. And, you know, it made me think a bit about how in this movie, both of you, you're working with uh, an iconography that's very established and familiar to people. And you're dealing with a huge like mythology here of Hollywood. And I mean, how does that you know affect what you're going for in terms of creating these, these spaces in LA? Well, it's an interest, you know, wh- what you're talking about was very much a conversation that we would have to have over and over and over and over. And that was, are we doing which Hollywood are we doing? You know, because Jack, my father, wrote a very, uh, it was a much more sort of Stanley Don and, you know, singing in the rain version of of Hollywood. And I would often remind people, it's the Hollywood you know. <laughs> it's not, it's not the spit shined, you know, earnest. This is not 
Shirley Temple's Hollywood. This is this is the the real place. This is we're going behind the Thalberg statue. So that was that, that was an it was an interesting um, trick to kind of um, you know for instance what we 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 first started talking about you know well should we approach the cinematic style the photographic style you know should we be slavish to what Kane looked like well. The, the trick of that is that Kane takes place in a world of mausoleums. I mean, the Thatcher Memorial Library, even Bernstein's CEO's office, even Joseph Cotton's old folks home on, mm -hmm. on the Upper East Side or wherever it was supposed to have been. You know, th there are these vast spaces defined by, you know, sort of volumetric light shafts that are in the background, but they're almost always there to remind you of this sort of place where corpses go. And what was strange about our story was, ironically, it took place in a world that first seduced people to come to Hollywood. It's bright, it's sunny 14 hours, it's 72 degrees, 300 days a year. The, there's sand and dust and the sunlight bounces off white stucco and and you know illuminates through um pebbled or beaded glass of the period it's a very different set of circumstances than what people associate with Kane. and so in a weird way all of those things that had made Kane so visually specific uh, they were kind of off limits to us because our story was a Hollywood story. It was not a, uh, it was not a mausoleum story. Don, thinking about that, that kind of extensive visual iconography of Hollywood, I mean, that sometimes feel like an albatross that you kind of had to find a new way to evoke and portray the period and places without kind of having people just say, oh, I get this. No, I, I don't look at it that way. I think, you know, we're trying to keep it real. You know, I think, I mean, wouldn't you say, David, I mean, we we're yeah. trying to, we weren't trying to be theatrical with it. I think Kane is kind of theatrical in a way. Yeah, um, very much so. And, and ours was more grounded in, you know, real events that were part of our narrative and part of our story. So, you know, I think the challenge from my end of it and was just making sure that, and <clears throat> when I scouted with David early on, it was like, you know, LA changes every day, being selective and finding those places where, you know, we could go wide. And, you know, it's a, it's funny because a lot of people tell me the, the movie feels so big. It feels like such a big LA movie. And, you know, really, I think it was just by being selective and, you know, using judgment on, what we could see and what we couldn't see in certain locations and knowing how to piece all that together, which, you know, I give credit to David and Kirk Baxter for it more than anybody, because I think that's what made it feel like a big movie. You know, I, mm. you know, it, you certainly it was, feel like you're was, in LA, you know, it was definitely contained, you know, it felt, it was. To me, I mean, we were at Huntington, yeah. we were at Paramount, we were at, we were in Culver city. We, you know, we were on stage, but, but, and we were selective. We were selective where we were yeah. too. It wasn't like we could, mm. we were just panning and shooting streets. We were, no, no, you can't, no, no, you can't do that. You so, do that you know, right. but to be able to, you know, 
incorporate like Bullock's Wilshire and the train station and the, the, the back lots, the way that, that they were framed and shot. And it just shows that, you know, by being selective and, and using some discretion and being smart, you can make something feel big and you can tell the story of a whole city by approaching it that way. Yeah, definitely. I also just want to, you know, recognize the collaboration going back to Zodiac that you've both had, which has really been extraordinary. And I, I, I wanted to kind of zero in on, on one thing that I thought was interesting. Don, when I was just reading about your career, you uh, had a background at, at art school. Mm-hmm. I was kind of curious, you know, how that has informed the films you've worked on with David. It's sort of interesting. I, when I interviewed Eric Messerschmidt, he had like worked with Gregory Crutzen on some of his photos. I, I wonder if there's anything about the particular like sense of detail and poise and, and, and mood. And if, you know, either of you are, are drawing upon sort of art world influences at all. I mean, I think with me, it's just, I mean, I rely more on just observances in life. You know, I think about, I mean, this will sound silly and stupid, but I think about when I was a little boy and I used to, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest and I used to walk down back alleys that were brick alleys to go buy baseball cards six blocks away <laughs> behind storefronts. And just, you know, I can, to this day, I can tell you every back door that was on a building and every telephone pole and every wire and every brick that was painted and the old faded out um, Firestone sign on the side. And, you know, I think observance in life is important and, and I've always kind of leaned upon that in some way and that doesn't mean that that in any way shape or form those specific elements have anything to do with films I've worked on but I think it's just about being attentive and being you know I my art school days were in the 70s and we won't talk too much about what art was like in the 70s but (laughs) using the term art school is a a little bit generous you know it was the days (laughs) of Chris Burden and Mark Boyle and Joseph Boys and the influences of conceptual art and so forth and I went to a very liberal school but you know I remember one of my professors telling me once um, Rip Woods and he, he said you may not come out with a body of work and you may never have a body of work of art, but what you will come away with is the value of observing. And that's what I want you to do is to mm. observe. And, and that's always stuck with me. And the other thing that stuck with me from art school, quite honestly, has to do with practical application to production. And that's one of my sculpture professors. And again, I use sculpture loosely. He told me, he said, you know, Don, when, <clears throat> when I first taught, I used to tell the, the first year semester students that you know, just go out and do something. We'll look at it at the end of the semester and we'll talk about it. And he said, I used to have the worst projects came in. And then what I did was I put governors on them. I put parameters down where, you know, they could only use six feet of two by four, a gallon of white paint, eight nails, three pieces of flat steel, whatever, you know. And he said the best things would come in. And I started to realize that sometimes restrictions are good creatively, you know, and mm. that's some, that really applies sometimes to filmmaking. I think. I think you know, often I get on projects and they don't have the money to do this or do that. But it, you know, it's never it's never daunting because you can. I mean, there's certainly times where you need money, but it's never daunting in the sense of losing spirit over the f- fact that you can't accomplish something. Because I think that there are many ways to do it, and that's kind of for me, the joy of it, to be honest with you. I also think that the longer you 
the longer you can have a conversation about what it is that you're in pre-production, you're, you're excavating, you know, you're having, you're having the same conversation over and over and over again, testing the answers that you're coming up with. You know, you kind of see, you know, there's, there's the first knee jerk response. Well, you know, we've got to find an amazing location for, uh, for this dinner party scene with, and, and then, you know, and you find one and you're ready to go there and you're ready to, you know, have buses to take extras up and down hills in Beverly Hills and Beverly Hills and renting parking lots and all that stuff. And then finally you reach a problem where you say, we just can't shoot in this location. And then you say, all right, well, what else are we building? And those moments that often seem like, ah, oh, everything's derailed are actually opportunities to really test what is important and why it is that you feel you need something of this scale or scope or why it is you need something that's this deep or why, you know, like one of the things that was interesting, part of why I was thinking of why I wanted to shoot the film in widescreen was I just felt, you know, I have this scene at the end where I have this massively long table I feel like if I'm in a four by three aspect ratio, if I'm shooting uh, one through three aspect ratio, I, I'm I'm not going to be seeing any of this. And I'm going to put Hearst at one end of the table and I want to have Mank walk the other end. And then, of course, you know, once we decided we were shooting widescreen, you know, Don came back with the research and said, you know, Hearst never sat at the end of the table. He always sat in the middle. Middle, <laughs> so you, and then you're like, oh, well, we're already down this path. We're, we're shooting widescreen. It doesn't matter. That's what we're going to do. But it, it, those are the, those conversations are priceless. Those conversations about why you're doing what it is that you're doing invariably lead to a greater understanding, not necessarily of what it is that you need, but the foundation that what you need, why you think you need it that way, what that's built on. And that's a really, those are great things to test the strength of the weave of the fabric that your story is, is on, you know, the, the tapestry of your story is, is on. And you do need to, you know, once the thing's up and running, you know, it's, it's hard to turn the, the ocean liner around. But in its infancy, when you're when you are still scouting and you're still building and you're still casting and honing in on what it can be, it's it's often, you know, when you get these, you know, Molotov cocktail out of left field that comes in and seems to destroy everything that you've been trying to, you know, you've been building toward. You know, oftentimes that's a really great opportunity to, to ask yourself, why do I feel I need a room that's this large? Or why do I feel I need to have a room that opens out and sees the Neptune pool or whatever? That can, it can really help you. It can really help you focus on what it is that you're going to see. Hmm. Knowing the why of the scope of it can really, really, you know, it can help you on the day because you're going, well, we're, we're choosing this location mostly because it's going to, we're going to see all that stuff out of focus in the background. Okay, great. Well, then we don't have to sweat that for the master. You know, um, maybe a little, a little along those lines, I want to just ask about one, one more specific space in, in the film. And that's the scene where uh, Upton Sinclair is 
doing kind of a stump speech and uh, Mank kind of takes notice and, and, and listens in. And I thought it was so interesting how that was staged and, and designed uh, because we always can kind of Mank's point of view in a way. We're not quite in it. We're not like uh-huh. in the full force of Sinclair's speech. And I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you designed that space and how, how, you, how you shot that. For me, it's similar to how the movie is politically astute, but isn't like banging your head over what it's observing. Well, it's not a, poli- it's not a political movie. It's not a movie that is reveling in the hair splitting. It, it's a movie that is, you know, again, you know, probably to the detriment of, you know, the casual viewer, we felt it was necessary to go in and explain what we were talking about in terms of um, socialism. Our idea of socialism was not um, communism or Stalinism or however it gets painted, you know, uh, but, but it was really the New Deal. And it was really about, you know, putting, you know, out of work people back on their, on their feet. And it, it was FDR's vision of socialism. And so we felt it was important to, to, to talk about that as it related to the specifics of how we were going to see Upton. You know, I've, I always felt that it was important that Mank, Mank's not a true believer in anything. You know, he's a true believer in the absurdity of humanity and that greed will conquer all. But when he sees Upton, you know, it, it was written as, what's the name of the square downtown, Don? It was Union, uh, Pershing Square. Pershing. And of yeah. course, Pershing Square, yeah. you know, it doesn't look anything like it did in the 30s, hasn't for 70 years. Um, <laughs> you know, it was like one of the first, first little parks to disappear. Yeah. Um, First but, Jack in the Box was there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so we knew we were going to have to conflate this. We knew it was going to have to be, you know, the we were going to see the Biltmore, which we love. And the Biltmore is, at, you know, looks exactly like it did the day Elizabeth Short disappeared. And, um, and so we knew we were going to see him come out and he and Shelley were going to, something was going to pique their interest and they were going to wander into the foreground. And then the question was, what do we see? And and would it be something, it's a, it's a man having a conversation into a microphone that has his supporters and detractors and, and all of the, all, all of that humanity around him. It has them riled up for whatever reason, but is it enough to bring Mankwitz across the street? Mm, probably not. <laughs> knowing, <laughs> knowing who he is, he's going to hear it. And he's going to go, yeah, yeah. The guy seems like he, you know, so, so then when you have that and you know that you know that you're going to bring Gary Oldman out of the Biltmore and you know and you know that he and Jamie are going to walk and hit a mark and they're going to see something and we shoot that then we were open to finding a lot an empty lot in um in Pasadena across from City Hall yeah right behind the YWCA or YMCA <laughs> or something yeah we found yeah. this one lot we were like this is pretty good. And, and unfortunately, we had the one, the camera position that would most mirror what they would see from the, was happened to be right in the middle of the, of the Pasadena police department. I forgot. Driveway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to move cameras every like three takes. It was like, all right, everybody out of the right. <laughs> and, um, See, you know, best laid plans. I mean, it's a, it's every a time perfect... an A one was called in, we had to move yeah. the camera. <laughs> yeah, 
And and then it was a question of well, if if what he's going to hear is not going to move him to the where we have to go into coverage where he crosses the street, and no, it was just enough for him to go, yeah, I kind of like what that guy stands for. That's all it needed to be. So that that at least from from my aspect, that that's what in, informed those choices. Don, over to you. Well, over to me. I mean, it was just. I mean, David said it was really just a simple cheat. You know, it was filmmaking. 101 you have them come out of one we used the Biltmore because it was scripted for that and the Biltmore is right on Pershing Square right and we had them come out there we shot them and then we did the turnaround in Pasadena and did a you know the cheat on it and it was as simple as that mm. you know it's a wonderful scene and I kind of like how it has it a visual counterpart in uh, Louis B. Mayer's speech giving people a pay cut while making it sound like it's working together I like those kind of I felt like this kind of echoed each other. Um, <laughs> well, I can just keep on going. I'm keep waiting for someone to step in and with the with the crook and pull me off stage. But uh, an um, adult, <laughs> an adult to stop us? No, go ahead. You, you, we got a couple more questions. I, I think we. Um, I was curious. Uh, you know, this is kind of a smaller d- detail, but I noticed it throughout the movie. Just the way lighting was incorporated into in, uh, within scenes light bulbs and, and sconces uh you know i felt my eye was often drawn uh, to them in an interesting way uh, so i'm curious how that works out in terms of design and shooting you mean in terms of using practicals within the sets and so forth uh, yes yes exactly yeah yeah well i mean i you know the intent of my set decorator jen and i is always to provide you know meaningful and purposeful practicals not just practicals randomly thrown into a set but things that would be there and serve a purpose and i and correct me if i'm wrong david but it seems like the more you shoot digitally the more those are used for actual actual lighting i mean not that there isn't other lighting that comes in with fill and so forth but yeah you know not tons of other lighting tons of other lighting that comes in (laughs) i'm sure when you look at the budget you could say that (laughs) Well, look, you know, we had the, we had a great advantage, you know, shooting digitally meant we could shoot at 3,200 ASA. And, you know, I mean, I don't know that Greg Toland ever imagined a world where the emulsion or the sensor would be that sensitive. But, you know, it allowed us to shoot, you know, we could shoot at T11 and, and not have, you know, everybody sweating buckets and dying on under, you know, sunglasses were invented in Hollywood to keep people's retinas from, from burning from arc lamps. And when you shot deep focus Hmm. photography, and I don't know of many examples that are quite as deep as, as Kane was to, to get, some of those compositions. I mean, I guarantee you there are brood arcs, you know, four mm. and a half mm. feet um, to the left of the left frame line. You know, there are moments in there that you know that the actors must have just been, they, mu- they must have gotten suntans, um, <laughs> you know, 
being being in the sh before they got the take. You know, they, they, these were people in need of they need a lot of sunscreen from the lamps that they had. So we didn't have to we didn't have to deal with that. You know, I mean, we we were so lucky in that in that respect in that the digital that aspect of it was handled for us. But it also means when you have a three thousand ASA sensor, um, it also means that all of your practicals they're really doing something. You know, for the most part, we're adding lights in all the time to kind of continue a push. You know, if you have a, if you can see a light through a doorway, invariably there's a 2K or 5K over the top of that doorway coming down to augment that so that it feels like that little bulb is actually what's spilling onto the ground and people walk through that light and blah, 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 blah. But when you're shooting at 3,200 ASA, you have to dim all those lights down and make sure that they're not actually, that, you know, they can be casting shadows of boom mics, you know, across the entire set because the sensitivity is so marked. So a lot of it is, uh, a, a lot of the use that, or the dependence that you see recently, you know, because I think Zodiac would have been on a Viper, that would mm -hmm. have been on the Viper film stream camera. So that would have been a 320 ASA. So, you know, we, we have a, a shit ton <laughs> more sensitivity than we did even 13 years ago. I mean, it's mm -hmm. kind of, it's remarkable. I did a, when, when the, when this camera was first put into my hands and it was a, it was a beta of it. I did a commercial in uh, New York City with um, with Rooney Mara, and we were doing a scene where we drove, where sh she was going to be lit by all the billboards in Times Square, and we were shooting at about a T five six or a T four, and we were shooting at one hundred and twenty frames a second or ninety six frames a second. I can't remember, and we rounded this corner and this a flash went off and I, the first time it happened, I thought, um, oh, it must've been just one of the billboards. There's some activity there. So this takes ruin. Let's do another one. We'll do another pass. And the second time we came around and we rounded this corner and there was another flash. And I said to the AD, I, I think you got to go and find out maybe somebody's taking pictures or something, but the, but the camera, the shot just keeps getting, um, you know, wasted by, a, a very bright light that turns on and it's and I think it's somebody's camera phone or whatever. And so the AD ran over to the, to the sidewalk and was looking around, came back, said, can't find anything. Let's do another take. We did it. And what we found was it was someone, it was somebody striking a lighter. <laughs> oh, wow. It was somebody across the street trying to light a cigarette and the flash from their from their lighter was what was ruining our shop. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, crazy. you know, yeah. technology yeah. is great until it's too sensitive. And then you're like, oh, how do we go back to 64 ASA? <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm curious what uh, you'll be working on next. Is, is that the, the killer? Well, we're hoping to, we're hoping to, to, you know, we have to, we have to now budget it and, and figure out what it's going to cost and where we can shoot it. So we're doing exploratory work on that and a couple of other things. 
Well, it's been you know wonderful talking about uh, Mank and also your your past work. Thank you for uh, <laughs> for just a, a, a wonderful uh, film, and uh, I really appreciate your your taking the time. Oh, awesome! Thank oh, you very thank much. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your interest. You've been listening to the last thing I saw with your host Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song Montserrat. Thank you for listening.